it is my prayer and hope that that every single one of us as believers, every single one of us as part of the church can can sing and proclaim how great God is. That that is at the the forefront of our minds. That that is constantly on the tip of our tongues. That we can uh, boldly proclaim that God is great uh, and ha- keep that in mind as we go about our days. Um, this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 3. We're going to be continuing on uh, in the book of Acts. And we're going to continue looking at what uh, what it looks like to be a church that's empowered by the Holy Spirit, what it looks like to be uh, the church that God has called us to be. Um, we are going through this process of, of figuring out what God has called us to be as a church and, and what God has called us to do. And so the, book, the, the first part of the book of Acts has been incredibly helpful to give us some tips and, and some guidelines with what exactly it is that God has called us to look like as believers and what God has called us to look like as as the body of Christ, as the church. So with that in mind, I also want to remind you that uh, right after church today, um, we're going to have a short meeting uh, where we'll hear an update from the vision team about kind of the process of figuring out God's vision for the church. We'll, we'll hear the, the proposed mission statement and get feedback on that, um, and hear your guys' uh, your thoughts on that. Um, and so we're just going to have a good time of dreaming together and seeing the future that God has for us, the, uh, this brilliant, glorious future where uh, God is working in and through us in a mighty way in our city and around the world. Uh, and so that's right after church. Lunch will be provided. We're, we're looking forward to that. Um, but before then, we're going to open up Acts chapter 3 and talk about exactly uh, what it looks like to be the people of God, what it looks like to think as the church. Um, look at me in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the, ninth, uh, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, that's, uh, that is uh, three in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, uh, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. And what happened to him? While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over to be and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring 
all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your uh, fathers, saying to Abraham and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let me pray. We'll get into the text. Heavenly Father, you are great. You are mighty. You are holy. You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. God, I pray that we would remember that at all times, that there's nothing we encounter, there's nothing that we come up against that, that you're not in control over. That there's no, uh, no army that can come against us that you don't have complete power over because, God, you are great and mighty and worthy of all honor and praise. You're not bound or limited by any space or time. You're not bound by any uh, weaknesses or frailties, but, God, you are great, and I pray that we would remember that. I pray this morning as we, we get into your word, God, I pray you would show us exactly what you want us to, to know and exactly how you want us to live. God, though you would give us ears to hear and a heart that would long to apply this word to our lives. It's the precious holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, there's nothing worse than missing out on a really good investment opportunity. All right? Uh, so imagine missing out on like the Amazon or the Googles or the Dogecoin. Um, like, imagine missing out, the last one was a joke, imagine missing out on, like, the, uh, the really good investment opportunities uh, in, in life. Well, there's a guy named uh, Charles Depew, uh, and he was kicking himself for, for most of his life because of his miss investment opportunity. In 1876, Alexander Graham Bell uh, received his patent for the telephone, uh, and he uh, needed money in developing this patent and in developing the, the technology, and so he decided to ask this guy that he knew, Charles Depew, who worked with him at the railroad, um, who, uh, or worked with his father-in-law at the railroad, who uh, had a little bit of money set aside. He said, if you give me $10,000 to work uh, on this telephone, you'll, be, you'll receive one-sixth of the patent. Um, you'll have one-sixth of the patent for the telephone. So Charles Depew looks at that, and he didn't have a ton of money at the time. This 10000 was about all that he had, and so he didn't, he didn't want to waste it. And so he went to Western Union. Uh, he worked closely with them. So he went to the CEO of Western Union, he said, what do you think of this telephone? Do you think it's, think it's worth anything? you think I should invest in it? And the CEO of Western Union said, that is a worthless device. He said, it will never be good for anything. Um, he, said, you, uh, he said, listen, I like you, Charles, and I don't want you to waste the little money that you have <laughs> on this invention. And so uh, Charles Depew decided that he would not invest $10,000 for a one-sixth share of the patent of the telephone. By uh, the early 1900s, when he looked back, at that decision, that $10,000 investment would have been worth $30 million uh, in early 1900s money, which is way more than that today. Uh, and so he was uh, kicking himself his whole life, missing out on that investment opportunity. Because the problem is, Charles Depew and Western Union didn't have the right view of the telephone. They had way too small of a view of the telephone. They thought it was probably only good for short-term, uh, short-distance communication and would never amount to much of anything. And so they had way too small of a view of the telephone, and that forced them, that caused them to miss out on this incredible opportunity. When the church began, 
in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit came and the church began to operate. We saw Peter stand up and proclaim this glorious good news about who Jesus is and, and extended the opportunity to his audience to respond and to believe in Jesus. And we saw last week that those who did respond and formed the church, that they were acting in a really unique way. They were doing some incredible things. They were praying together. They were uh, serving together. They were, they were giving up uh, resources to meet each other's needs. They were, they were interacting together in a, in a really unique, uh, beneficial way. And one of the things they were doing was submitting to the apostles' teaching. They were listening to the apostles as the apostles were telling them what it meant to follow Jesus and what it meant to, to glorify God. They were listening to these teachings. And we saw last week that one of the things accompanying these teachings was signs and wonders. So the apostles were performing these miracles as a way to confirm that this message is from God. God was using uh, the apostles and performing these miracles through the apostles as a way to confirm and say, hey, they're telling the truth about Jesus. They're telling the truth about what it means to follow him. They're, they're, they're saying things rightly and correctly. And so God was confirming the message of the apostles through miracles. And in Acts chapter 3, uh, Luke records for us a snapshot of one of these miracles followed by the apostles' teachings. It's kind of a, a, a little snapshot, a picture of what that looked like with this miracle happening and then the teaching right after it. And the, the main thrust of Peter's argument, the main thrust of this entire miracle and sermon afterwards concerns how you view Jesus. It concerns your, uh, the way that you think about Jesus, the way that you view Jesus. And, and Peter is deeply concerned that we might be viewing Jesus way too small. <laughs> like our view of Jesus may be inferior or insufficient. And so the whole miracle and sermon afterwards are geared towards challenging our view of Jesus and making sure that we have an accurate, correct view of who Jesus is and what he can do. So it starts with the miracle in chapter 3. Uh, at the very beginning, it starts with a man who was, who was uh, crippled, lame from birth. And now the, uh, that designation is important. It means he, he had never walked in his life. He probably wasn't paralyzed based on the text. He probably had uh, ankle problems. But, um, but either way, whatever the exact problem was, he couldn't use his legs to support himself. He couldn't walk. Uh, and, and so he had no muscles uh, in his legs. He, had no, uh, he hadn't developed any of those muscles. And in those days, uh, he was out of luck. Uh, he, there, were no, there was no disability insurance. There was no, uh, he, he couldn't get a wheelchair and live a uh, somewhat normal life. He couldn't count on other people making accommodations for him. He was, he was out of luck. He's a guy that, that could not work for himself because he'd been he was crippled, and from, from the, the day he was born, he could never walk, uh, and he could never use his legs correctly, and so, uh, so he was out of luck, and he needed resources uh, from people, so what he would do uh, is he had family members or close family friends who would drag him, pick him up, and, and set him down in front of the gate, probably every day. They would, they would drop him in front of the gate so that during this time of prayer, he could ask for alms from people. As these Jews were coming into the temple to go pray and to congregate together, he could be on the outside and say, hey, can you help me out? Like, I, I need a meal. I need, I need to survive. And, and the, the good thing is that the, Jew, uh, the Jewish faith relies heavily on almsgiving, that, that almsgiving is a big deal in the Jewish faith. So he was living and surviving for uh, his entire life on the generosity of, of fellow Jews at the, at the temple. So every single day he would get dropped in front of the temple and he would ask people, can you just give me one more meal? Can you just, can you just feed me one more time? Can you just, can you just keep me going 
one more day, day after day, for his entire life. Because he, he was out of luck. He couldn't work for himself. And so up come Peter and John. And we, as the readers, should get really excited. Right? We, as the readers, could probably see where this is going. Now, here's a guy who'd been crippled and lame since birth, and the, deci- the, the apostles, Peter and John, are walking up to the temple, and they're going to cross paths with this guy. And, and we, as people who, under, who have read the book of Luke and who, who have seen the book of Acts so far, have seen this play out multiple times before. Right? Like we've seen Jesus heal people who have been lame since birth. And we've seen Jesus walk up and heal crippled people. He's, we've seen Jesus uh, give, the, give sight to the blind. We've seen Jesus uh, heal people in numerous different ways. And so we, as the readers, are getting a little excited. I th- this is a great moment. This, this guy's whole life is going to change. Right? All he has to do is, is ask to be healed, and, and Peter and John can probably do it. We, ha- we haven't seen a miracle like that yet, um, so we don't know it for certain, but Luke the way he's written Acts has made us pretty sure that he can heal, they can heal him. Like we've already talked about the signs and the miracles that he's doing in Acts chapter 2. We've seen the coming of the Holy Spirit. Like we're pretty confident Peter and John can heal this guy. All this guy has to do is say, hey, can you, can you heal me? Can you, can you fix my legs? Can you give me a, a whole brand new life? And so we're excited as Peter and John are walking up towards the temple because this guy's whole life is going to change. Right? No longer is he going to have to be begging for food. No longer is he going to be begging for money. He's not going to be living day to day on the generosity of the Jews. Uh, he is going to have his entire life changed. He can walk for the first time. And so we're excited because we see this, this collision that's about to take place of a guy who's in desperate need of change, a guy who's in desperate need of healing, and Peter and John, the apostles of Jesus Christ, who by the power of God can provide that healing. So we get excited which makes the next moment a little devastating because as they're walking up to the temple, the, the man who's sitting there, who's laying there, who, who is face-to-face with the people who can provide healing and freedom for him, he asks for alms. He does the same thing he's done every day for his entire life and asks of them from the same thing that he's asked of everybody else for his entire life. He says, can you just give me money? Can you give me one more meal? Can you keep me alive for one more day? So as Peter and John are walking up, he asks for alms. And in his defense, he may not have known who Peter and John were. He may not have known that they had the power and the capability to do that. But, but we as the readers are a little let down. Like this guy is, is coming face to face with people who can heal him. And all he asks for, all that he reaches out for, all that he, all that he asks them to give him is money to, to buy one more meal and to live one more day. Uh, there, I don't do horror movies. I, I hate horror movies. But there's a really uh, popular horror movie trope um, uh, that's a form of dramatic irony. And so we're, uh, we, we who are watching a horror movie know that if you hear a sound in the woods or a sound in the basement, don't go check it out. I don't do it. And, and so when you hear that sound, the main character doesn't know what the sound is. They don't know that they're in a horror movie. And so uh, in their defense, they, they don't know that they shouldn't go check out the sound. But um, but in their case, uh, they go check it out. And we, as the people watching the movie, uh, you as the people, I don't watch it, but you as the people watching the movie are screaming, like, no, like, no, don't, don't go check it out. Like, stop doing that. Uh, and we're, we're crying out to them, like, don't, don't go check out the sound. Don't you dare go do that. And uh, that's the same thing that's happening here. 
in his defense, he probably didn't know who they were, but, but everything in us cries out like, no, ask them for healing. Ask them to fix your leg. Like, no, don't just ask them for another uh, meal. But all that he does is ask for one more meal. All that he does is ask for alms. And then, then he encounters Peter and John, and Peter looks at them in verse 4, and, and John looks at him too, and he says, look at us. So this guy looks at them, and, and uh, this is probably uh, at the beginning of a, a short letdown for him, because he's looking at them like, sweet, I get one more meal. I get, I get the money that I was asking for. They're going to be generous. And the first thing out of Peter and John's mouth is, hey, we don't have any money. And I, I really hope that Peter and John, like if we're speaking in English, probably inflected it, like, I don't have any money, but like, I really hope that's how he did it. Otherwise, that's a major letdown on his part. Like, hey, look at me. I have nothing for you. You know, that's... That would be brutal. <laughs> but, uh, but he asked, uh, they said, look at me, I, we, don't have you, we don't have any money. We don't have silver. We don't have gold. We have nothing that we can offer you financially. But what we, we do have gives you. And what is it that Peter and John have? Faith in Jesus. Peter and John are apostles of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. They have been given the power of the Holy Spirit. They have seen God do mighty miracles and incredible works through them. They have faith that Jesus Christ can provide new life, that Jesus Christ can provide healing. They know Jesus. They have witnessed his resurrection. And so they, what they have is faith in Jesus. This is what we have I can give to you. He says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. By the name of Jesus Christ. Not by the name of Peter, not by the name of John, not by my own power or abilities, but by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. By faith in what you think he can do for you. By the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And Peter reaches down and he grabs his arm and he pulls him up and the guy leaps to his feet. And this is a guy that hasn't walked his entire life. He has zero leg muscles. They've never been developed. But in an instant, as Peter reaches down and he pulls them up, this guy jumps to his feet. I think it's crazy that the text mentions leaping. It's not that this guy just kind of hobbled around until his legs got up to his feet. Like this guy started walking and running and leaping. And the first thing that he does is praises God because he knows that Jesus healed him. He knows that it wasn't by Peter or John's power, but it was by the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that he was healed. That he's able to walk and run and leap for the first time in his life. That he's not, he doesn't have to beg and ask for one more meal or one more day. But he can work for, his, for himself and provide a, a wage and a living for himself. And he can not just survive but thrive. Because Jesus Christ of Nazareth gave him new life. We are so thrilled and excited that Peter and John didn't give him what he asked for. <laughs> like Peter and John didn't just say, here are a couple pennies. Uh, have a great day, and walked away. But they, they knew what he actually needed was a new life, uh, with uh, uh, new legs, and they gave it to him by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So the crowd sees this guy. He had been begging there every day his whole life. He had been uh, crippled since birth. They see him walking and running and leaping in the temple, and they are astounded. And, and the way we're supposed to read that, we can read that kind of cynically, uh, from our end, like, they're not reading it, uh, they're not looking at him saying, hey, I just gave that guy five bucks. Like, what, what gives? Like, he was just crippled. Like, they're not, they're not, it's not a cynical, like, look, they're, they're excited. Like, that guy's been crippled forever. 
But now he's walking and running and leaping in the temple. That's incredible. So crowds are forming, and they're starting to see this guy and do all of these things. And this guy is, is hanging around Peter and John. Like he's, he's hanging on them. He's, he's celebrating with them. Like There's a lot of commotion happening around Peter and John. And so the crowds walk up, and they're, they're assuming that Peter and John are responsible. Right? They see this guy praising God. They see him running and, and leaping. And they're like, there's something crazy about Peter and John. Like, they're amazing. Those two have some crazy power. Maybe they're prophets. Maybe they're uh, blessed by God in some way. But there's something unique about Peter and John. And that's what they got out of the miracle. That's what the crowds got out of this, out of this miracle was there's something great about Peter and John. And so the first thing out of Peter's mouth in this sermon explaining the miracle is that there's nothing great about Peter and John. That's what we see at the start of the, uh, the sermon in verse 12. Peter saw it, he addressed the men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him walk? Like, why do you look at us as if we did it? Like, somehow we're holy enough and righteous enough that we just healed the guy's legs. There's there's nothing in Peter and there's nothing in John that could heal this guy. So he's saying, "You, you, you have the wrong guy, it wasn't us. But do you remember Jesus? And do you remember that guy... Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Because he's the guy that healed him. Look what he says in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over, delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. So he says, we didn't do this. But there was a guy named Jesus. You, you know him. You've heard of him. You've seen him. Uh, this guy named Jesus, our our God, God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God that we are going to the temple to worship and praise, that God raised up Jesus and glorified him. Now, that, that term glorified doesn't just mean that he kind of raised him from the dead, but, but he raised Jesus up to his right hand, that Jesus has uh, been given authority and power by God. What it, what it shows us as the reader is that Jesus is worthy of all honor and glory and praise, that he really is God. Like he really is the Son of God because God himself has glorified Jesus and told us, this is my Son. Worship him, glorify him, praise him. He's God. So God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has glorified Jesus Christ, God the Son. And he immediately follows that up by saying, that Jesus, the one that, the one that you crucified, yeah, that one is the one that's raised up and glorified. That Jesus who, who has been shown to us to be God, that God himself has, said, has given him authority and honor and praise, you guys murdered him. He says, you guys uh, delivered him over to Pilate, and he says, you denied him in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So he's calling back this moment uh, in, in the life of Jesus near his death where he's arrested, he's brought to Pilate, the, the, the guy who's in charge of uh, the area, according to the Roman government, the, only, the guy who is capable of executing Jesus by cross, uh, and they give him to Jesus. Uh, they give him Jesus to Pilate, uh, and Pilate doesn't really find anything wrong with him. Uh, he doesn't find any fault, but he goes to the Jews and he says, uh, why, "Why are you giving me this guy? Uh, why do you want? Uh, what do you want me to do with him?" And they shout, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" And uh, every year, around that time, he gave them one prisoner. So Pilate gets up there and he says, you have a choice. I can give you Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who 
is called uh, the king of kings, uh, the guy who is called uh, like the king of Israel. Uh, I can give you that guy, or I can give you Barabbas, this murderer, this criminal. Which one do you want? And as the readers of Luke, as the readers of the gospel, we know which one you should want. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Give us the one who's God. Give us the one who is all authority and praise and honor. Give us that guy. But what the Jews do in that moment is they say, give us Barabbas. Give us the criminal and execute Jesus. That's why he says the following verse. You denied him before Pilate. In verse 14, uh, you, den- uh, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So you spurned, you rejected, you denied the one who is holy and righteous, the one worthy of all glory and honor and praise. You rejected him and you asked for a murderer to be handed to you instead of Jesus. And then on top of that, you killed, you murdered the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So what Peter is saying is, is this Jesus, the guy that you rejected, the guy that you asked for a murderer for instead, the guy that you crucified when you handed over to Pilate, that Jesus is God. Like He's worthy of all glory and honor and praise. He is the holy and righteous one. He is the author of life, and you killed Jesus. You chose a criminal instead of him, but God raised him from the dead and God glorified him. And he says that Jesus, by, by faith in his name, has healed this guy. That Jesus that you rejected has given this guy new life. What Peter is telling his audience is that they have way too small a view of Jesus. Like a, a criminally small view of Jesus, because what they decided was Jesus was nothing more than some religious fanatic, some heretic that deserved to die on a cross. When they're asked to evaluate what Jesus is worth, they decided a criminal and a murderer was worth more than Jesus. When they, when they were asked to evaluate who Jesus is and what he could do for them, they decided that he wasn't worthy of any praise, any glory, any honor, and they turned him over to Pilate to be executed. His audience had way too small a view of Jesus. And what he's saying is... Uh, He's not just some religious fanatic. He's not just, he's not some heretic. He's God. He's the one worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And so this is what he says in verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So he says, I know that you didn't know what you were doing. I know that, that you acted in ignorance, that you, uh, you had too small a view of Jesus, and that is your fault. You, you didn't view Jesus correctly. You didn't have the right view of him, but you were also ignorant. Uh, you, didn't have, uh, you didn't know what you should have known about Jesus. And God fulfilled his work. Uh, it was always his plan that Jesus would die and rise again, so God worked through what you did. But at the end of the day, you acted in ignorance, having too small a view of Jesus. So this is what he says. He then gives us three things that we need to know about Jesus. Three things that we need to know that Jesus can do for us. Three things that they needed to understand about what Jesus could do for them. We see the first thing is that Jesus can forgive their sins. Look in verse 18, uh, verse 19, excuse me. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So Peter is saying this whole miracle happened to show you that Jesus Christ 
has way more power and authority and glory than you, than you have given him credit for. But if you repent and turn from your sins, Jesus Christ will forgive you. And your sins will be blotted out before God. Jesus Christ can forgive your sins. Jesus Christ can fix what's broken. Jesus Christ can restore your relationship with God. Keep in mind, these are not petty sins, right? Like, it's not like they're, they, they lied, a total white lie, or cheated on an exam. Like, those are worthy of, of judgment and uh, condemnation. But these aren't, these aren't petty uh, grievances. They murdered Jesus. And these people decided that a, a criminal was worthy of more respect and honor than Jesus. And they sent him to die on a cross. Like, these people killed the Son of God. That is not some petty, uh, insignificant sin. But, God, but Peter is saying that if you place your faith in Jesus, he'll forgive you. And he will blot out and wipe out everything you've ever done wrong, and you will have a restored relationship with God. Jesus Christ can forgive your sins. They didn't have the right view of Jesus. The first thing that you need to know about Jesus, to have the right view about Jesus, is to know that he can forgive you of everything you've ever done wrong, and he can restore your relationship with God. There's no sin in your life that cannot be conquered by Jesus. There's no sin in your life that cannot be covered by the blood of God, by the blood of the Lamb. So when you place your faith in Jesus, he can forgive you of your sins. The second thing that we see that Jesus can do is he can provide refreshment. He can provide refreshing. Uh, look with me in verse 20. Uh, Repent, therefore, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, uh, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, uh, for you Jesus. So times of refreshing may come. There is this uh, beautiful imagery there of what Jesus can do for you, and it's provide refreshment and nourishment for your soul. This is one that we don't, we don't talk about a lot as Christians. We, we, we trust Jesus to, to forgive us of our sins. We trust him to come back. But, but when it comes to the day-to-day -day things, a lot of times we forget that Jesus Christ has the power and authority to provide refreshment and nourishment to our souls. Whatever it is that we're anxious about or worried about, whatever it is that, that's coming against us, whatever it is that we feel like is the biggest deal in the world, Jesus Christ, by his power and authority, can provide refreshment and nourishment to our souls. He can provide rest for us. Peter tells his audience that if you trust in Jesus, if you turn from your sins, if you repent from what you were doing, and you turn to Jesus, he will provide you refreshment and nourishment for your soul. There will be peace and rest in your soul with, towards God. And all the worries of the world, all of the anxieties, all the things that are coming against you will melt away when Jesus Christ provides refreshment for your soul. This Jesus is more powerful than anything that comes against you. Like this Jesus has more authority, more power, more glory than anything that you encounter in this life. And so this Jesus not only has the power to forgive your sins, but he has the power to provide refreshment. The, these this crowd didn't believe it. <laughs> Not only did they value Jesus less than a, uh, than a criminal, but they, they wouldn't have thought that he could forgive sins, and they definitely wouldn't have thought that he could provide any type of refreshment or value for them. So Peter's saying, if you want to believe in the Jesus that the Bible talks about, if you want to believe in Jesus as he truly is, you have to believe 
that he will provide rest and refreshment for you. I think of a guy named Polycarp. Uh, he was kind of the second generation of Christians. He knew uh, and listened to and was taught by John, uh, the Apostle John. And he was in this second generation of believers. And he uh, has this incredible tale uh, in the martyrdom of Polycarp uh, that was written by some of the church fathers. And he, um, he's this faithful follower of Jesus who loves God and teaches his word and, and trains up people uh, in the way that they should go. But the Roman government cracks down and and starts persecuting the church, and they arrest Polycarp. And Polycarp is sentenced to die. He's sentenced to be burned at the stake. And when he is confronted, when he uh, is asked about his sins, uh, he refuses to deny God. And he goes and and is burnt at the stake. And and the story, the, 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 um, we're told that when he was burnt at the stake that the flames couldn't consume him, so they ended up stabbing him with a spear, and he died. But what we get out of that entire tale of the martyrdom of Polycarp is that Polycarp was at peace. Like That is a soul at rest. He shouldn't have been, right? He's in, he's in jail. He's about to be executed. He's going to be burned alive at a stake. And just because of what he believes, he, he should have been worried and anxious and fearful. He should have been angry. But he wasn't. He was a soul who's completely at rest with the situation. Jesus Christ can provide refreshment, nourishment, peace for your soul. The third thing that Jesus can do is provide restoration. We can see in uh, verse 21, uh, at the end of verse 20, uh, repent that, the, that, Christ may, uh, that God may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So this Jesus one day will restore all things. This isn't about uh, particularly your restoration, like restoration in your life making things better for you, but this is the eternal restoration, that Jesus will come back as a conquering king, as as the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and he will do away with evil and wickedness and the brokenness of the world, and he will restore the world to what it's supposed to be in Genesis chapter 1. He will restore all things. This Jesus will come back and provide restoration for the world. And so this Jesus... Uh, will, like this view of Jesus will impact everything about you. This view of Jesus will impact how you view eternity so that the things of this world, the worries and the brokenness and the wickedness and the sinfulness we know is just temporary. We know that we can be brokenhearted about it. We can, be, uh, we can, we can cry about it and, and mourn about it because it is, is terrible. Like injustice, injustice in this world is awful. Sinfulness, brokenness, wickedness in this world is terrible because it goes against God's plan. It goes against God's design. The the sickness and death in this world goes against what God wanted for the world. But we can have hope because we know Jesus is coming back to fix it all. We can have hope and joy in the, the recognition that Jesus is coming back and he will restore all things. That this Jesus is powerful enough to fix everything that's wrong with the world. And that we, as his followers, will enjoy eternal life and a perfect paradise. The Jesus that they handed over to be executed, the Jesus that they decided was worth less than a criminal, a murderer, is a Jesus who could forgive their sins, provide refreshment for them, and would restore all things. 
Peter goes on and he says, uh, Moses said, he points to uh, Deuteronomy, this Old Testament book of the law, the most highly revered book in, that, uh, in, the, in those books of the law, the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, Moses said, the Lord God would raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And so he's, he's pointing out this prophet that, that Moses pointed to and said, there's a guy coming after me. There's a prophet that will come, and you have to listen to him. And if you don't listen to him, you'll be destroyed. And he, he goes on to say that that's Jesus. Jesus is the prophet we've been waiting for. Jesus is the guy that all of the Old Testament has been pointing towards. This, that is Jesus. Jesus is the guy Moses told you about, the guy that you respect, the guy that you honor, the guy whose law you're following. Like that Jesus, uh, that Moses, he pointed forward to Jesus and said, listen to him or you'll be destroyed. So there are, there are consequences for not following Jesus. There are consequences for having way too small a view of Jesus. Because if you don't believe that Jesus can do the things that he said he can do, he will come back and restore all things. He will come back and do away with wickedness and evil in the world. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, he'll do away with you too. And you will, spend, you will spend forever separated from God in hell. Peter says there are consequences for having the wrong view of Jesus. There are consequences for having way too small a view of Jesus. You will be destroyed. He goes on. He doesn't, he doesn't leave it there in that hopeless note. Uh, he goes on and he says, you are, in verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, in your offspring all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's pointing to that unique, special covenant that the people of Israel had with God. We talked about that in our last sermon series, but that, that special relationship that the Israelites had with God, that special covenant relationship that they had. He says that was pointing you to Jesus. And so God himself, in verse 24, 26, God, having raised up Jesus, sent him to you first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He says, you have that special covenant relationship that was pointing you to Jesus, who was telling you that you should have listened to him, telling you that you should have believed that he, sa- he is who he said he was, that you should have believed that he could do these three things. Right? It's all pointing you forward to Jesus, but here is your chance again. Turn from your sin, repent from your way too small view of Jesus, and believe in him, because he has sent Jesus, and he's now sent Peter and John as witnesses of his resurrection to say, repent and believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Believe, believe in Jesus uh, as the man who can do those three things. Believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And the, the message for us, the reason Luke includes this at all, is that he's calling out to us to do the same thing. He is, he is calling out to us. He is crying out to us, saying, believe in Jesus. Abandon your view of Jesus that is way too small. Because your view of Jesus is too small if he doesn't change everything for you. And that's the the main idea of this passage, is that your view of Jesus is way too small, criminally too small, if if he does not change everything for you. If you do not see Jesus as someone who can forgive you of your sins and change your status with God, if you don't see Jesus as somebody who can provide refreshment and nourishment to you every single day of your life in your soul, if you don't see Jesus as somebody who will come back one day and make all things right, if you don't view Jesus in that way, then your view of Jesus is way too small. 
and you're not believing in the Jesus of the Bible, you're not believing that Jesus is who he says he is, you're believing in, a, in an insufficient version of Jesus. Because your view of Jesus is too small if he doesn't change everything for you. My fear is that, that you and I are way too content to ask for alms of Jesus instead of a life change. That you and I are way too content to just ask Jesus to change a few things, to ask Jesus to provide a little bit of help, to ask Jesus to do a few things for us instead of changing everything like he can do. That we are way too content to ask Jesus to forgive our sins, but then we go and find refreshment and nourishment in the things of the world, and we encounter troubles and worries and problems in the world without an eternal understanding that Jesus will come back and fix all things. So we trust Jesus for one of these three things and not the other two. We are way too content for, to ask for alms of Jesus and not a life change. We are way too content to, to approach the throne of God, to pray to the Lord, to, to, to lean on Jesus and to ask him to fix our financial situation, to ask him to fix some health issues, to ask him to fix some relationship problems. But that's all that we go to the Lord for because we don't trust Jesus for everything else. We don't believe that Jesus will fix everything. We are way too content with asking for just alms. Like one small part of what he can do. And that stems from a view of Jesus that is too small. That stems from a, a view of Jesus that doesn't believe that he can change everything about you and provide an entirely new life. So what Peter says to this audience, he says, Jesus changed this guy's life, this cripple's life. He gave him brand new life, and he can do the same for you. And that's true of every single one of us. And Jesus can change everything for you and provide you entirely new life, where your status with God has changed, where you're refreshed in your soul, where he will one day come and restore all things, and you will live in a perfect paradise, free from worry and fear and trouble. Do you believe in Jesus? Or do you believe in a small version of him? Do you, have you placed your faith in what Jesus says he is and what he said he can do? Or do you just believe in Jesus for a few things? This morning, Luke is calling us to believe in Jesus, the Son of God, the author of life, the holy and righteous one, to believe that he really is who he says he is that he can really do what he said he can do. So this morning, do you believe Jesus for those three things? Do you believe that he can save you from your sins? Do you believe that he can provide refreshment and nourishment for you every single day? And do you believe that he will one day come and restore all things? And are you living based on that information? Because if you're worried and stressed in your day-to-day -day life and not relying on Jesus to provide refreshment, then your view of Jesus is too small. And if you see the trouble and the, and the problems and the brokenness in the world and you, your heart breaks because of it, but you, you don't see any hope, and it doesn't drive you to look forward to the day that Jesus is coming back and there will be redemption, there will be restoration, then your view of Jesus is too small. So this morning, we're going to take a moment as we pray and as we sing to take a moment to correct our view of Jesus. Take a moment to, to go to the Lord in prayer and, and give over the, the worries and the fears and the anxieties in your life. Give over the sins that you've struggled with that you didn't trust Jesus to fix. 
give over the, the, the long-term understanding of brokenness in the world and recognize that uh, with an eternal perspective that Jesus is coming back and there will be an eternity with life and joy and peace. So whatever it is that's going wrong in our lives, whatever it is that, that we are not giving over to the Lord, give it over to Jesus this morning. Correct your view of Jesus. Raise your view. You're never going to have too big of a view of Jesus. You're never going to trust in him for way too many things. He is the son of God. No matter what, I can tell you your view of Jesus is too small. This morning, take a moment and correct your view of Jesus. Spend some time in prayer before the Lord and ask him to raise your understanding of who Jesus is. Raise your, your understanding of what he can do for you so that you can turn over the things in your life that you've been struggling with, that you've been worried with, turn over those things and allow Jesus to take care of it. This morning, some of you have never trusted in Jesus before. You've never trusted in Jesus for salvation. You've never trusted and placed your faith in him to forgive you of your sin. You may have believed that Jesus existed. You may have believed that he was a good guy. You may have believed in his teachings, but you've never trusted him as God to forgive you of everything you've ever done wrong. This morning, you have the opportunity to have a restored relationship with God. This morning, you have the opportunity to have your sins forgiven and to one day enjoy eternal life in a restored world. If that's you this morning, I invite you to come talk to me. As we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. There's not any uh, worry. There's not going to be people uh, looking around or judging. This is a moment for you to step into eternal life and have your sins forgiven by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This morning, as we sing, if that's you and you need to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time, I invite you to come talk to me. But every single one of us needs to change our view of Jesus this morning. Because it's way too small. And we serve a big God with a son who is capable of saving us and refreshing us and restoring all things. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die on a cross for us. I thank you that Jesus came to, to give up his life as a sacrifice for us, that he poured out his blood in order to forgive us of our sins, in order to rescue us and redeem us as a people. God, I thank you that, that he gave up his life to provide refreshment and nourishment to our souls. I thank you that he is powerful enough, that he is glorious enough, that he is in control of all things so that he can refresh and nourish, nourish us at any point. I thank you that we can have a, a recognition of the fact that he is coming back to restore all things. And that the brokenness and the sinfulness and the wickedness of this world is temporary. And I pray we would operate with a mindset that says, you are great. that Jesus Christ can forgive us and restore us, refresh us. And may we be a people who have an accurate view of Jesus. It's in the precious, holy name of Jesus that we pray.